The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Like double dog dare ya! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing now? Tuesday edition PFTPM from the barn. And I've moved the camera angle around a bit so you can see a different part of the barn. It's not like the barn's that big, but there's two sides to it. You saw one side last time. This time you see this side. I kind of like, this is a very old rocking chair that used to be at my grandmother's house. I have no idea how old it is. I have no idea how it, how it hasn't shattered into a million pieces down here at some point over the last four years, but it's pretty sturdy, it's pretty comfortable. So the old rocking chair, plus whatever you see in the background, a bunch of little helmets and guitars and whatnot, just another slice of what we have going on down here in the barn. So let's get right to it. What do we have going on in the National Football League? I saw that Stephen Jones, the Cowboys COO, was on radio today with our friends, 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, talking about the Visual evidence suggesting that Dak Prescott had a party on Friday night with up to 30 people present, Ezekiel Elliott there as well. Now, previously, the Cowboys' position had been no comment on anything related to that situation. Well, Stephen Jones had a comment today, and I think that's part of the Jones DNA, frankly. Even when they have no comment, they still have a comment. So Stephen Jones had this to say about the evidence that came out over the weekend about an alleged reported whatever party at Dak's house. We've certainly communicated with Dak and Zeke, and I think they're certainly aware now of how sensitive these situations are. I don't think you'll be seeing that anymore. Now, there's two ways to take that. Either it won't be happening anymore, or if it does happen, we won't be seeing it anymore, which two different things, obviously. So. We'll, we'll see which of those two ends up applying to Zeke or Dak or neither. Uh, that it would just be done and over and everybody moves forward and nothing more like this is going to happen. And everybody takes seriously the requirement to stay at home until the requirement to stay at home ends. Hope, hopefully they've learned a valuable lesson through this and everything moves forward in the proper way. Moving forward for the Cowboys, something we mentioned today on the PFT Live program, Dak Prescott not showing up for the virtual off-season program. It's really not a surprise because he wasn't going to be there for the real off-season program. But the thing is, with everyone cooped up and with limited opportunities to get ready now for the 2020 season, I thought maybe there's a chance he approaches it differently. Maybe there's a chance that Dak participates in this at-home process because, really, you're at home. What else are you doing? It's better for him to spend the four hours at home per day, four days per week, involved in the virtual off-season training program than, say, going to a local gym and working out there with Des Bryant. So regardless of the fact that it would make sense in many ways for Dak Prescott to do that, he's not going to do it without a long-term deal from the Cowboys. And we reported that on the air today, and I can reiterate that. Dak is not going to take part in the virtual off-season program to be conducted by the Cowboys unless and until he has that contract. It's not a lot of leverage in comparison to what it would have been if. 
Dak Prescott had been in a position to actually not go to the facility, not take part in any of the real practices and workouts that are going to happen or would have happened over the next six weeks or so. But it's something. And remember, the ultimate deadline here, June 5th, not June 15th, July 15th, that's when the Cowboys and Dak Prescott must have a multi-year deal in place or he can only have a one-year contract for 2020. So I don't know whether or not this stance is going to cause the Cowboys to finally give Dak what he's looking for, but the bottom line is this. As Mike McCarthy gets ready for his first season coaching the Cowboys, he's not going to have Dak Prescott present or virtually present for the offseason program. One other thing that I want to touch on before I answer some of your questions, I posted about this earlier today, and on the surface, it kind of surprised me, but the more I think about it, it really does make sense. College football season, and I've been very blunt in my belief that there's no way that college football can be played if campuses aren't open to students. You can't perpetuate the ruse of the student athlete if there's no student, and if it's not sufficiently safe to open up campus for in-person classes, how can it be safe enough to bring back the football players and have football season? You just can't do it. So there can't be a student athlete if there's no student. And if you just let them be athletes and give them an exemption to come back, you admit to the world that they are just pieces in this gigantic billion-dollar money-making machine. And I don't think enough people at enough schools get on board with admitting that to allow college football to happen as anticipated. September through early January. However, there's apparently a possibility for doing it a different way, for working around the likelihood or strong possibility or whatever term you want to apply, because right now nobody knows. But in the event that we can't have college classes in person in the fall, which means you can't have college football in the fall, Chris Fowler of ESPN said earlier today, and these comments came courtesy of Sports Business Daily, that it's being discussed and it's gaining momentum to have college football 2020 played February through May of 2021. And look, I, I guess I'd be fine with that. It would allow me to actually watch and enjoy college football season because currently I travel on Saturdays anyway. It would put a real crimp in the NFL draft because the college season wouldn't be over by the time that teams would be getting ready to select players in April of 2021. They'd have to move the draft back, which I'm sure they would do to give them a chance to number one, let the season end. And then number two, have some effort to scout these players above and beyond the actual football season itself. But it does create an opportunity for the NFL too. And this is a drum that I've been banging. If there's no college football in the fall, the NFL, if it finds a way to play its games, can move its broadcast, that big cluster that we have on Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern and the multiple games we have at 4.25 p.m. Eastern that don't get televised beyond the local markets, you can slide those to Saturday. And you can fill three windows on Saturday like they do late in the season when we get all excited. Remember that day in December when it was the Texans and the Buccaneers and the night finished with the Bills and the Patriots and for some reason I can't remember the game that was in between. But that is what you could do every Saturday. A triple header on Saturday, triple header on Sunday, you got Thursday night, you got Monday night, and you also could maybe do Friday night if high school football doesn't happen. The one big thing to remember here, before the NFL could do this, the NFL would have to get clearance from Congress to move, uh, broadcast games on Saturdays and Fridays between Labor Day weekend 
and early December because that's part of the balancing act for the broadcast and I trust exemption. That's the law that allows the NFL to put its TV rights in one big ball and sell them to the networks, not have the Cowboys sell their games and the Cowboys make a ton of money for selling their games and then the teams that no one wants to watch selling their games and making a hell of a lot less, which is how it would be without the broadcast antitrust exemption because these are 32 separate businesses. They couldn't bundle the TV rights together. Anyway, my point is this, before I put you to sleep, with details about broadcast antitrust exemptions. You can't just start broadcasting games on Saturday, even if there's no college football. You need to get Congress to say, it's okay, but why wouldn't it? If college football abandons that space for 2020, so then we get more NFL football and the college football season would piggyback. So spring football doesn't work. If it's college football, maybe spring football works. Something to keep an eye on, but that's the kind of creativity that college football is going to need in order to pull off its season. And I don't know what kind of creativity the NFL is applying other than we plan to play, and hopefully they'll have a plan in place for whatever may happen and however the virus controls the calendar for the months of September through January. All right, let's answer some of your questions. PFTPM policy, did Vince McMahon decide that he didn't need another year of losing money to get the tax write-off he called the XFL 2020 now that COVID-19 changed the economy? I think it was more complicated than that. I think Vince McMahon was hoping to ultimately make significant money off of TV rights. And we really don't know how valuable the TV rights would have been because the ratings never stabilized. And they had big challenges coming up with college basketball reaching the climax to its season. April bringing baseball back, how many people really would have watched? It started high and it just went down and down. And at some point it was going to flatten out. We never got a chance to find out. And I think with the very real possibility, they wouldn't be able to play the games in the spring of 2021, or maybe McMahon has caught wind of the possibility that college football games will be played in the spring. I think he realized it was time to pull the plug. And chapter 11 bankruptcy, different than chapter seven. Chapter 7 is liquidation. We're going out of business. We're done. That's what the AAF did last year. Chapter 11 is reorganization, which means you use the bankruptcy laws to avoid paying your debts while you reorganize the business, and then you emerge with some sort of a business plan. So if they were totally done, if it was over, if they were kaput, it would have been Chapter 7. Now, sometimes a Chapter 11 can become a Chapter 7, and that possibly will happen here. But the fact that it's Chapter 11 tells me that there is some sort of contemplation by the XFL to continue. And I saw a report yesterday from Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic that the XFL is for sale. So I don't know who would buy it right now, but if there's somebody out there that maybe thinks, hey, I've got the money, I haven't been dramatically affected by the drop in the stock market, and I'd like to own a football league, that person may be able to buy the XFL on the cheap. And... I, look, I'm not ready to declare that there's no place for the XFL. And the one thing, and I mentioned this last week, if and when someone embraces the concept of old school football and finds players who are willing to assume the risks that players assumed all the time back in the 80s and the 90s before the game got a lot safer, there could be a market for that, right or wrong. And there would be plenty of people who didn't like it, but there would be a market for that. And I always thought the XFL was going to pivot in that direction Maybe someone buys the XFL and pivots the XFL that way in an effort to fill what I think is a thirst out there in some 
uh, corners of the country and maybe in more than we realize for that kind of football to be broadcast on TV. All right, what else do we have here? This one's from the PFTPM Posse. It relates to a topic we already discussed, but I'm going to go ahead and answer the question with no offseason. As of now, at least, who has the most best leverage between Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys? I think that not having in-person offseason workouts gives the Cowboys more leverage for now. They can wait until that July 15 deadline to work out a deal with Dak Prescott. Dak would have had a lot more leverage to squeeze the Cowboys if there was going to be an on-field traditional off-season workout program because at some point they're going to have football practice, not in pads, but it's football practice. And if you don't have your starting quarterback there while you're trying to get up to speed with a new head coach, that's a problem. And that would have been a big problem for the Cowboys. Now, look, there still may be some sort of on-field off-season program on the back end of the pandemic. I doubt it, though. I think there won't be any off-season programs, and I think that does help the Cowboys. It, it, it puts less pressure on them to do the deal now that they would do in July. And see, here's the problem. If Dak uses the occasion of a virtual off-season program to try to squeeze the Cowboys to do a deal, they could move to a bottom line right now, and Dak could say that's not good enough. And from the Cowboys' perspective, it could be their bottom line. But if Dak says it's not good enough, the real deadline continues to be July 15 for a multi-year deal. So you move to your bottom line now, and then you're stuck because Dak says no, and there's still another deadline out there later where Dak moves to his bottom line and maybe squeezes more out of the Cowboys. That's the danger, that's the dance, and that applies with any negotiation. That's why we always focus on deadlines, real deadlines, not fake deadlines. Now, sometimes a fake deadline gets treated as a real deadline by both sides. And it can work, but you got to have both sides on the same page or the other side ends up squeezing the side that moves to its bottom line. The worst thing you can do in a negotiation is move to your bottom line prematurely because if you do that, you eventually will end up moving beyond what you thought was your bottom line. I don't know if that counts as any type of CLE credit, but you know what? You can go ahead and try. You can go ahead and try. And if it works, you can, you can uh, cut us a check for uh, 0.2 hours of continuing legal education via the PFTPM podcast. All right, what else do we have here? Interesting question from PFTPM Posse. It comes from uh, at Playoff Cap. Can you see, do you think that Tom Brady and or Drew Brees will retire if the 2020 NFL season is canceled? First of all, it's way too early to think that the NFL season will be canceled. I don't think it's too early to at least factor that possibility into our assessment of the broader situation. Because right now, we don't know what's gonna happen. And I think if anyone says they know what's gonna happen, they're either dumb or they're lying or they're both. No one knows. So I think it's fair to at least say what if. And that doesn't mean you're rooting for there to be no season. Why in the hell would anyone root for that other than people who just don't like football and don't want it to be on TV? Even then, why would you root for it? Because what goes along with it means, you know, we're still in a bad spot from the standpoint of the pandemic and the economy and everything else. We should all want football to be back because what that means is we're all doing better than we have been over the past five or six weeks. So with all that said, if there's no football in 2020, I think Brady's done. No, wait, got to get the right BR. I think Brees is done. I think Brady ends up still playing because Brady's made it clear he's going to play until he's 45. 
Now, maybe he ultimately won't if he wins a Super Bowl or something or walk off into the sunset. But if there's no season, he ain't winning the Super Bowl and walking off into the sunset. He's going to want to play at least one season with Bruce Arians and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's not retiring if there's no football in 2020. For Drew Brees, different situation altogether. Because I think the Saints, in their mind, and remember when Sean Payton not long ago had that, that Freudian slip, or as Sims would say, Freudian slip, that, that this is Drew Brees' final season? They want to turn the page to Taysom Hill and move forward with Hill. Interesting angle to all this. If there's no 2020 season, is Taysom Hill still a restricted free agent? Does everything get kicked forward by one year, right? And do the Saints have the ability to keep Hill around with that first-round tender of somewhere between 4 and $5 million? Or would he become an unrestricted free agent and the Saints would – risk losing him if they keep Drew Brees for one more year. That would be a factor in what the Saints want as well. All things considered, I think if there's no football in 2020, Brees won't play in 2021, but Tom Brady will. All right, what else do we have here? Interesting question from PFTPM. See, what happens is, because I follow the PFTPM Posse account, all of the questions that he posts end up at the top of the stack of questions. But here's one. What teams do you think will be the best and the worst prepared for this draft from an IT communications, et cetera, standpoint? And look, I, I mean, I could start making guesses and I could bring back just, you know, our own kind of half joking stereotypes about the teams that are dysfunctional. And maybe that is the rule of thumb. Maybe dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things, as Big Cat always says, and that dysfunction will manifest itself in everything a team does, including whether to what extent the team is prepared for this draft. And maybe that is the right way to look at it, whether it's how you make best use of the mechanisms available to gather information. And Patriots coach Bill Belichick made it clear in talking to reporters on Monday that they are using these rules to their advantage. Yeah, you can't have in-person visits. You can't have private workouts. The pro days were done. But you can talk to an unlimited number of prospects as often as you want. As long as, well, no, an unlimited number, but you're limited to three times per week for a prospect, one hour at a time. So you can call them up to three times a week, as many times as you want, as it relates to all the prospects. I really make that worse instead of better as I tried to cover my mistake there. Anyway, all prospects you can talk to three times per week, an hour at a time. And it comes down to how much time you can allot to that. How much discipline do you have? Are you willing to sit there? Think about this for a second. There are hundreds of prospects. Are you willing to sit there? and talk to prospect after prospect after prospect. It gets exhausting. But if anybody is going to find a way to work that to their advantage, it's the Patriots because they find a way to work everything to their advantage. And the flip side would be the dysfunctional teams maybe don't have the foresight to figure out how to use that to their advantage. And I think that same mindset would apply to the IT situation. You know, the teams that are willing to spend the money the teams that aren't cheap. And we know the teams that are cheap. Somebody responded to the question by saying the Bengals probably still have dialogue. I wouldn't go that far, but there are a lot of expenditures that get made by NFL teams, and there are plenty of owners who are looking for ways to pinch pennies. And this is not an occasion to pinch pennies if you want to get the most out of your preparation for this virtual draft. So you need to have good IT people. You need to have the best possible internet capability with backups and redundancies. I got the impression last week talking to Brandon Bean, the Bills GM, that teams will have a hardwired backup to the Wi-Fi. 
You know, you never see that anymore. Every once in a while, I'll stay in a hotel and there's that old blue ethernet cord that, that uh, plugs in to your computer. And most computers don't even have that. At least the Apple computer doesn't. The thing that, the, the jack for the ethernet cord, but that's the way to do it. That's the way to eliminate any of the problems that may arise from having the, uh, the, the Wi-Fi go down during the draft. So maybe the simple answer is dysfunctional teams will continue to do dysfunctional things and the best teams will continue to do things smart and right and appropriately, and they will benefit from whatever the circumstances may be. All right, one more question from PFTPM Posse before I say he's had enough. With so much economic uncertainty, especially related to the salary cap in future years, how should teams structure long-term deals for star players outside of tying deals to a percentage of the salary cap? Well, hey, you know, that's an interesting point. Because let's say Christian McCaffrey, his deal, four new years, $16 million per year in new money. And what that means is they took the money he was due to make this year and next year and added in $64 million over four years on top of it. It turned into a six-year deal. And we'll see from the structure how much gets paid early, how much is guaranteed, what his cap number is each year. But the cap number for 2021, that may end up consuming a disproportionately large chunk of the cap if the cap goes down. See, that's one of the risks of doing these long-term deals. I'm, this is one of the reasons why I'm glad we do these from time to time, because I hadn't really thought of it that way. I haven't seen the official Christian McCaffrey numbers yet. My understanding is, as of last night, the deal wasn't actually done. It's just agreed to. But when we see the real numbers, 2021 is going to be important, because if they play this year without fans, that's going to hurt the bottom line. And if they don't make a ton of that money back by broadcasting games on Saturday, for example, there's going to be a limitation on the total revenue. And the total revenue this year determines the salary cap next year. If the salary cap drops significantly, that means if you have a set number for a certain player, that player is going to consume a greater percentage. And look, that's the downside to the approach I've been advocating for years that a player should say, specifically a quarterback, I want a set percentage of the cap every year. I want 18% every year. Whatever the crashes, then you're screwed. But you know what? The teams are really going to be screwed because they're going to have contracts that have set cap numbers for 2021. What do you do then? Do you have to cut half your roster and then hope to resign them? Is there going to be this, this huge influx of free agents and teams are going to be taking cap charges because they have to cut guys because they can't carry their cap number under their contract. They'd rather take the cap hit that goes along with cutting them. Will players be cooperative and voluntarily reduce their pay for next year because of the reduction in the salary cap like ESPN talent is doing? You know, a lot of things are going to get turned on their head next year if the NFL doesn't make the kind of money this year that it otherwise would make in a normal year. And without fans, I don't know how you come close to making the money that you would make in a normal year. So that's an important point. And that's something that, that merits discussion because this Christian McCaffrey contract could end up being a huge ball and chain for the Panthers. Not, not that they could avoid it. What are you going to do? He's your most important player. And I guess they could squat on the fourth year of his rookie contract, the fifth year option. But if the guy wasn't going to show up this year, if the guy was going to draw a line in the sand, if the guy inevitably was going to say, trade me to a team that will pay me, it wasn't a good outcome for the Panthers either way. So that bears monitoring as we get closer and closer 
to whatever the NFL is going to do in 2020. All right, uh, let's move on. Oh, our good friend Leapers 500 has some non-football questions. I may circle back to those. Let's not, let's not get people turning off the podcast during the football portion. I may have some thoughts on some of these non-football questions that are being posed. Leapers 500 asks this, how much does anyone know about Stidham's ability to lead the Patriots offense? Well, here's what they know. They know what they saw in practice last year. They know what they saw in the preseason last year. And the coaching staff in New England presumably has the skills and abilities to watch the film, reflect on the interactions that happened, what kind of demeanor Jared Stidham had. There's been praise heaped upon him by defensive players like Stephon Gilmore and Devin McCourty. There's a lot when you work with a guy exclusively for a year that happens that we don't see. Yeah, he doesn't play in the regular season. He played on a very limited basis last year. They see him in practice. They see him running the scout team. They see him in the meeting room. They see how he interacts with his teammates. They see what kind of swagger he does or doesn't have. So they're in a position to know a lot about it. It's much better to go with a guy who's got one year of experience than a rookie because the guy who's got a year of experience, you've experienced him. You know what he can do or at least you're able to project what you think he can do based upon everything you've gathered on the practice field and everywhere else. So, look, it may not translate because it's a different situation altogether when it's time to go out there and play in an empty stadium with no one there. That's another dynamic, too. Maybe you're more comfortable with Jared Stidham knowing that it is going to be like practice, right? It's going to be like a scrimmage. There isn't going to be anybody there. Isn't that going to be weird if that happens? It's both fascinating and depressing to think of football being played with no fans. I was watching some of the Packers-Vikings game last night from 2009, and you'd hear the reaction of the crowd, and they blow the horn in Minnesota. And can you imagine watching an NFL game without that? Well, we may be. We may be watching 256 NFL games without that. And that's going to be a factor for some guys, because some guys need that in order to get the most out of their own inherent abilities. And some guys freak out when that happens. So for Jared Stidham, I don't know, maybe a break-in season with no fans is just what the doctor ordered. So I think the Patriots know a hell of a lot about Jared Stidham. And the fact that it's Jared Stidham and Brian Ward are currently on the depth chart, that tells me they've got faith in Jared Stidham. Whether or not that faith is justified, we'll find out coming up in September. Hopefully we begin to find out in September of 2020, not 2021. And this leads to the next question from our good friend, Leapers 500. Do you honestly think the NFL season will start in September? I find it very unlikely. Now, again, nobody knows what's going to happen with the pandemic because the virus will determine when it's safe to do things. But I am convinced that the NFL is determined some way, somehow to play this year. Now, maybe they only play 14 games. Maybe they only play 12 games. Maybe they get started and understand at some point they're going to have to stand down if there's a second wave of an outbreak in November or December. But I think they're going to play. They're not going to give up the TV money. They're not going to give up the revenue. They're not going to put themselves in a position where they have to pay the players to not play. And I know that some have reported that the NFL won't have to pay if they don't play. I'm telling you, the CBA, the standard player contract, says nothing about any type of force majeure clause, fancy term for, I don't know what it means, but all it means is you're screwed. Uh, if, if there's a clause like that in the contract that covers a pandemic because that gives one side the ability to pull the plug and not pay you, that's not in the contract. So the NFL, based on my reading of the agreements, 
would still have to pay. All the more reason to make sure they play. And all the more reason for the NFL and the NFLPA to work together to come up with a solution that everyone is okay with. You know, the NFLPA could be very obstinate here. And good news is they worked out a deal to do the offseason program between the league and the union. There may be some other deals that need to be done before we get to the point where we know whether or not we're going to play. And it would be a, a huge PR debacle if the NFLPA is credibly perceived as being the ones who delay or prevent a football season from happening. All that said, I think they're going to find a way. I really do. I, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know whether or not they'll have to play all the games in Florida. I mean, Florida has determined that football and other professional sports are essential functions, meaning that even with a stay-at-home order in place, professional sports can go forward. Now, the NFL is not going to use that as the impetus for allowing the Jaguars, the Buccaneers, and the Dolphins to do anything because the league's position is that all teams have to have the same rules. Otherwise, it's not fair if one team can't go to the facility and another team can. But if the stay-at-home orders are still in place in September, and if Florida still regards professional sports as an essential function, that's a scenario where, in theory, you could take all the teams to Florida for four months. But look, anything like that that would involve teams that are quarantined, teams staying in a hotel, teams away from everyone else, you're asking a lot to get these guys to abandon their families for four or five months. The guys who don't have families, they won't care. The guys who do have families, kids, wives, whatever, at a minimum, they're going to want their families to be with them. Um, even then, they may not want to do it because they're going to want to keep their families safe. Every day you show up at the locker room, you're running the risk that coronavirus is, is going to be sweeping the facility and you're going to bring it home to your family. So a lot of issues, a lot of questions, a lot of things to resolve. But I think the NFL will find a way to play its games in 2020. And you know what? It ultimately may be that for some of these players, they choose between playing and getting paid or not playing and not getting paid with no consequence like daily fines for a holdout or any type of punishment, forfeiture, signing bonus. They could work out a deal where any player, almost like a conscientious objector to the draft, any player who conscientiously chooses not to assume the risk of playing football this year can choose to not play. But I'll tell you what, if they do that, they're still going to have 53 guys per roster. Now, it may be more XFL than NFL by the time it's all said and done, but I don't know. Is Aaron Rodgers going to walk away from $35 million for four months of football? especially when he can justify his sacrifice by understanding that he is helping the country through a difficult time. I think more guys would play. Whatever the requirements, whatever the rules, whatever the sacrifice, I don't think you're going to see guys sacrifice their money and their ability to play football if it comes down to it. It's kind of the same mindset that applies to a lockout or a strike. I mean, these are different circumstances altogether, but if a player is given the choice, play and get paid or don't play and don't get paid and those are two boxes that players like to check they want to play and they want to get paid and i think more of them would go ahead and do just that all right let's see what else we have here nfl leads slash uk if the nfl season can't go ahead as normal why couldn't it be delayed until later in the year like the ncaa is considering the offseason is so long there's so much leeway for this to happen. So what you're suggesting is, just like college waiting until February, could the NFL wait until 
November, December, January, February to start the season. Here's the problem, though. At a time when we're so sensitive to the overall physical toll that football takes on a player, and I didn't address this earlier as it relates to college football, but if you delay the season and the season ends in May, how do you turn around and start it again in September, right? 16 games, 11, 12, 13, however many for college. You got to give guys time to recover. You got to give guys time to heal. What if somebody tears an ACL in May? When are you going to see that guy? So these are very real concerns when you talk about moving the football season back because there's another football season right behind it. And, and do we get into a situation where you start 2020 in February, so you start 2021 in January and 2022 in December, and you ease it back in that way and get back to September after five years? I don't know. I, I, I just think that the NFL is going to find a way to play the games in September. And it may be very controversial. It may not be popular. It may entail players assuming risk. I think they're going to find a way to play in September without having to do anything crazy other than maybe shorten the season, maybe delay it by a few weeks. But they're going to be hell-bent to play those games and cash those checks from the TV networks. Ten Newkirk, who gets signed first, Cam Newton or Jameis Winston? You know, this question keeps coming up, and Peter King and I, I think, addressed it last Friday on PFT Live. I really don't know. Because for Newton, the impediment is having the ability to determine whether or not he's healthy. And if you can determine he's healthy, he gets a job right away, doesn't he? For Winston, it's not about health. For Winston, it's about who wants him. And it's also about Winston recognizing that he's no longer a high-end starting caliber talent in the eyes of the NFL organizations. That he's going to have to come in and accept a backup role. And will the team even want him to be a backup if he's not willing to accept being the number two guy on the depth chart? You know, every year there's a handful of teams that have a backup who really isn't a backup. He's a Ryan Tannehill type of backup. He's just getting up to speed. And if the starter stumbles, the backup takes his place. Most teams want a guy who understands what his role is and doesn't aspire to upset the apple cart and put the starter on the bench. So, you know, Jameis Winston, before he's going to get a job, has to accept he's going to be a backup and accept that he's truly going to be a backup. Because, you know, if the Bears, which really are the only team out there that's firing a shot across the bow for its starter, if the Bears wanted Jameis, they could have gotten him instead of trading for Nick Foles. Now, look, would the Chargers do Jameis Winston with Tyrod Taylor? It sure sounds like the Chargers are going with Tyrod Taylor. I think Jameis is going to have a rough time here. And I think he's got to come to terms with it. It's going to be an extended process to go through anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And ultimately, he's got to accept the fact that for now, until he gets a chance to prove himself on the football field, prove that he's not making a bunch of stupid mistakes and putting himself in position to have 30 interceptions again that teams just aren't going to believe in him. And remember last week, if you watched PFT Live and saw this, first of all, thank you. Second of all, you've heard this before, and maybe you agree. The 49ers just feel like a good fit for Jameis Winston because Kyle Shanahan simplifies the offense for the quarterback. The quarterback doesn't have to make a lot of decisions on the fly. It's very regimented. It's very A leads to B leads to C leads to D, not go out and figure out in the moment what the right thing for you to do may be. That's how Jameis Winston gets into trouble when he gets creative, when he feels like the play is slipping away and he tries to make something happen. 
you need to iron that out of your existence if you want to be successful in the NFL. And one way to do that may be to play for Kyle Shanahan. So that would be an intriguing development if it happens. But I, at this point, I don't know who gets signed first. I think it will be Cam Newton if we get to a point where he can go somewhere and have a proper physical and a team can come to the conclusion that he's healthy. Because if you can give him that physical and conclude he's healthy, why would you not want him? If he's healthy, he's one of the best quarterbacks in football. All right. Tyler Furness wants to know, what do I think the biggest surprise will be draft weekend? Look, I, I have no idea because this is so different than any other draft we've ever seen. Is there going to be some big trade that happens during the draft? We haven't seen a lot of trades in advance of the draft. And I think at this point, you know, if there's going to be a Yannick Ngakwe trade, if Anthony Harris is going to be traded by the Vikings, if some other veteran player is going to be traded, I think that they're going to wait to do it until the pick's on the clock because – the last thing you want to do when you acquire a pick is acquire it early and give the teams behind you a chance to speculate on what you may be looking for and then leapfrog you and get that guy before you can. Do that pick, do that trade when that selection is on the clock. So there may be some trades that already are tentatively going to happen that no one knows about. you got to trust the other people who are part of the transaction to keep their mouths shut. But it could be that we see Ngakwe traded during the draft. We could see other trades during the draft. And I still don't rule out the possibility of the Dolphins trading up to number one and getting Joe Burrow just because the Bengals say they can't envision any scenario where they would give up the pick. Well, that's just exercising the leverage that may be necessary to get the Dolphins to give up the maximum package. And even though Brian Flores, the coach of the Dolphins, and Chris Greer, the GM of the team, have reportedly resisted the concept of giving up a lot to move up to number one, at the end of the day, it comes down to the owner. And the owner loves Joe Burrow, and the owner is aggressive. And if Stephen Ross sees mid-70s, late-70s, this I think he's close to 80 now. This is the way to carry through for the rest of his life a quarterback who, who provides them with the franchise player they haven't had since Dan Marino re- retired more than 20 years ago. Maybe Stephen Ross says, you know, we've pissed away plenty of draft picks over the years. What do we have to show for it? Let's give them whatever they want. Let's keep adding to the pile until we've made them an offer they can't refuse because I want Joe Burrow to be the quarterback of my team for the remainder of my life. And that can be a very powerful impetus when an owner starts to see that, that uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and I'm trying to think of a delicate way to put it. But, you know, <laughs> bottom line is, he's far closer to the end than the beginning. And if he realizes that he can get through to the end with Joe Burrow as his starting quarterback, that may be a way to convince Stephen Ross to trump his head coach and his GM and get it done. Speaking of getting it done, I've got some other things I have to do. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to look and see for one more here, but I do have to get going. Uh, I'm looking for one more question here. Scrolling, scrolling. I want to finish with a good one. Come on, somebody. Give me a good one here. I'll do the Saul Goodman. Give me a good one here. Um, Here's one, Dirtbag1327. Is there any doubt the Patriots have some rubes on the dark web hacking into everyone's draft info? They got nothing from their latest sideline taping fiasco. We still don't know what's going to happen to the New England Patriots from that Bengals situation. I should ask the league about that. That just kind of disappeared. But there was a belief they were going to get punished. And if they were going to have draft picks taken away, it would have to happen fairly soon. See, another reason why I like doing this, it's reminded me of something that I've forgotten to look into. I'm going to send the NFL, unless I forget between now and the time I get back up to the house, which is entirely possible, 
I'm going to ask the NFL if there's been any update, any finalization of the Patriots-Bengals sideline taping fiasco. But I'll say this, and I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. Anybody who tries to cheat during this draft, cheat by hacking into whatever video conference software is being used, or just cheat in any other way, because this draft is driven by one of the most unique situations we've ever encountered, the biggest public health crisis in over a century. If anyone tries to use that to their advantage and they get caught, they should be punished like no team, coach, owner, GM, whoever has been punished before. Because it's one thing to cheat in the normal course of business. It's another thing to exploit an unprecedented crisis, both physically, mentally, and financially. I said both. I came up with three. But it's affecting everyone. It's affecting us all in some way. To take advantage of this tragedy, of this disaster that's unfolding in slow motion every day of our lives, and God knows where it's going to end. If someone cheats during a draft that was set up to allow the process to go forward at this time, then they should get hammered by the NFL like no one has been hammered before. All right. That's it for a Tuesday edition of the PFTPM podcast. Let's do this again later in the week, maybe on Friday, or you know what, if I feel like it, maybe we'll do it before then. Everybody, enjoy the rest of the day. Tomorrow morning, PFT Live, Big Cat is back, and we'll have our two hours live, two hour re-air, and stories and other content for you around the clock from footballtalk.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave.